Welcome to Into Theology. I'm joined with Ian Clary. We're back after, I don't know how long. It was almost probably roughly two months. We, probably about a we, month. Um, yeah, it's been about, I think it's been a month. We did it in the end of June. Did we? Right, right before you went to Alberta. Okay. Yeah, so we've, we had, so let's just say five or six weeks. I don't no, know. It was actually, exactly. it had, no, it hadn't been July because uh, in, at the end of June, I was in quarantine. Uh, oh. In Northern Ontario. So yeah, we were definitely, yeah, we were definitely in probably mid-july so we so we had some interest you were quarantined in ontario where, where then i went to alberta the land of the free where there was no covid rules yeah. now and, i'm back in colorado the land of the free where it's very that's true. minimal <laughs> that's true the land of the minimal restrictions that's right um but we're back uh so we're talking about today like maybe we're going to jump into kelvin next week but today we're going to do a couple things we'll do a couple updates talk about why we're doing into theology and then talk about some controversial theology and so not for the sake of like being controversial, but just for being interesting, speaking peace in a controversy, thinking through things. Um, so the first thing though is, okay, tell me you have, you published a book. So I feel like you need to show us the book oh, and tell oh, us what the book is. Shameless self-promotion. I don't have a copy of it with me because I gave, them, oh. <laughs> I gave the ones out to my friends already. So I don't have one. Wait a minute. Uh, I don't have a copy. <laughs> Do you give it out to your I said, friends? Friend. I said friends. <laughs> yeah. So I published here. I could show you this. This is the cool mug that I got. Oh, H&E Publishing. Great. Uh, some good guys, Chance Faulkner and the guys out in, in Peterborough. And uh, yeah, so they were really kind and, and took on a, a master's thesis. So, oh, I don't even know what year it was that I did this in Toronto Baptist Seminary. I did a, a master's uh, on um, Augustine of Hippo and the later Pelagian controversy and kind of just dug into like his response to the Pelagians, which was obviously very strong on predestination and God's sovereign grace. Uh, but then uh, the later Pelagian controversy uh, in fields, I was looking at his engagement with these monks in, in North Africa in a place called Hadramidum that, uh, that had no idea uh, his views about predestination. Like the, the, the earlier Pelagian controversy had passed them by. They're in this little backwater. And, uh, and all of a sudden, one of their monks finds a, a document of Augustine's on predestination and it terrified them. They thought, oh, my goodness, we don't have free will. And this is in his in Augustine's later career as a bishop in, in Hippo, and so they had reached out to him and said, "What is this? Like this is this is this is actually really put our our monastery into turmoil." And so he was really gracious and kind with them, and really kind of like in a pastoral way reached out to them and just said, "Listen, come come spend time with us here in Hippo. I want to like talk to you guys about this face to face." He wrote a couple of treatises to them, really affirming the freedom of the will as it relates to predestination. And, uh, and I was always just really impressed by his, his, you know, his pastoral care in, in that, you know, he could have, he could have come in like a, like a bull in a China shop and just steamrolled these monks that knew no better. But instead, he just really reached out, took, took great care with them to make sure that, hey, like, no, you have free will. Uh, yes, God is absolutely sovereign, but there is freedom of the will here that you don't have to freak out that you've lost. And uh, so I, over time, expanded the, the thesis to really kind of fill in that pastoral theology element to things. And, uh, and then really kindly, the guys at H&E were, were willing to take it on. They did a great job. There's a guy in Brazil, Marcos, uh, I can't remember how he, his last name is, but he did the cover for me. Um, so it's a bit of an homage to Henry Chadwick's little biography of, of Augustine. It's got a similar mm. feel. And then the picture I chose, I wanted to, two things I wanted to hit on with the, with the picture of Augustine on the cover. One, I wanted to get him in this, is an older picture of an older man. So he's got a white beard because the this part of the controversy happened later. Uh, in his career and then i wanted him to look north african like 
you know, I wanted it to be kind of more true historically to what he would have looked at. So he's it's not your, your classic medieval portraits of Augustine where he's, you know, more right. European looking, but here he's, he's got, he's reflected. It, lo- it looks more like, you know, the Berber heritage that he would have had from his mother's side of the family. That's pretty obvious. So, so that, that was, that's kind of what I wanted to do with the book. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with how, how those guys published it and how it looks. And, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to be, I'm not the next Peter Brown, <laughs> you know, when it comes to Augustine, but I, I'm just happy to have made a little contribution. So. Great. Yeah, no, that sounds interesting. So uh, let's, I, I want to uh, define some of the words you said. So a, a Pelagian, what's a Pelagian? So the Pelagianism is a early Christian heresy that affirms like the radical freedom of the will. Um, so um, it was articulated by a guy named Pelagius, who was a British monk, uh, who I like, to te- I like to tease my wife and say he was actually Welsh because she's from Wales. Mm. And, uh, and so then uh, he, had, he had left uh, uh, Britan- Roman Britannia um, because it had kind of, it was, Roman Britannia was undergoing some really bad uh, uh, military conflict when the Legion had left Britain. And so he had come over to the European continent and just saw all this like horrible um, abuse of power and wealth within the church and things like that as he thought society was crumbling, he was really upset by it and rightly so. But he was a strong kind of moralist or, or legalist in that he thought we don't, you know, what we need to do here to clean up society is to just pull ourselves up by our moral bootstraps rather than actually relying on God's grace to save, which would change society. And so he thought grace was good. Help from God was good, but it wasn't necessary. You could save yourself just by moral effort. And so that Augustine engaged him in a controversy over that and said, yes, there's free will, but it's not the way you're conceiving of it. And, uh, and so, so now we describe any, anybody who's like a good moral teacher, but doesn't have a theology of grace would be very Pelagian. In there. Like, okay. I would think, I think of like a Jordan Peterson. He's great. He's super helpful, but he's, he's not a believer and his teaching is effectively Pelagian. So if you can, if you can understand that about him, you can really benefit without having to like, you know, mm-hmm. the gospel in the middle of it. So what's the, what is the Augustine's kind of positive view of free will then? Yeah. So he has that kind of view where I guess what it, to speak anachronistically that we would describe today is kind of like compatibilist. Uh, so when you read the, the the works against the the earlier Pelagians, and there's another there's another big Pelagian that really dogged Augustine throughout his career named Julian of Eclanum, and uh, um, so his his responses to them are really strong on God's sovereignty, predestination, grace. Uh, you can't do anything, you know. So you are fallen in Adam. This is where the doctrine of original sin gets articulated clearly from Augustine. Um, but then with these later ones, he says, no, but within that, you still are making free choices. Like even, even in your fallen state, a fallen person is making free choices. It's always going to be governed by the nature that's fallen, but the choice is always going to be a free choice, right? So he, he's going to argue things like uh, the, the will is always free in one sense to free to choose according to what it desires to do. But those desires are going to be governed by your nature and your nature now is fallen. So in that fallen state, you're always making a free choice, but it's always a free choice that's mm-hmm. going to be towards sin and away from God. So when God saves by that that sovereign grace, changes the nature, the will is still making free choices governed by the nature, but now the nature has been redeemed. And so now you can actually choose good or evil in a perfected state once we're all in glory. The, again, free will is still there. The, the will is going to choose according to its desires, which is governed by the nature, but now the nature is perfected. So you'll never choose sin, but it's still free choice. So 
that, that's kind of how he'll get into that. So what you described um, makes sense. I, one thing that's interesting though, is I think a lot, it doesn't make sense to a lot of us today in this way. Most of us don't think of nature as like Augustine did. Like you think, okay, I mean, we're all humans. We're part of human nature. And it's kind of just a generic category. But for Augustine, human nature had particular properties and boundaries and limits. Yep. It, was, it was a real thing. Uh, so you might call him a moderate realist or something like that. Where I say it's not that maybe we aren't, we just don't even know about or think about categories like that. And this is actually why, I mean, it, it's nothing that I can prove, but I just kind of anecdotally, I think a lot of us in the reformed world accidentally become fatalists because of this. Absolutely. And we're, we're fatalists, which is like the original heresy. Uh, when I think of um, the early groups, so-called Gnostics, there's a bunch of different groups. Yeah. One of the areas uh, beyond Christology that they were called out, rightly so as heretics, is fatalism. We have no freedom. And ever since that, in the very early parts of the church, you'll read in the church fathers that basically free will is emphasized so strongly against this heretical notion. Yeah. And sometimes you read that today and you think, oh, well, they're, they're not like, like the reformers are, which is actually incorrect. There's different, they're, different, they're talking about different things is, is what it is really. But today we're fatalists in that we say things like, God is sovereign and predestines everything. And so it really doesn't matter, you know, what, what we do, what our choices mean, because it's all under God's control. Yeah. And um, that sounds good and pious, but uh, behind all that, it, it, it discounts the freedom of choice, yeah. the freedom of contrary choice, if you want to use a more reformed idiom yeah. that we all have. And we've seen this in Calvin, but you'll see it also in um, Luther, who we I don't think we've ever read Luther for this podcast, but Luther himself in his book, the freedom of the will is hammering over no, and over. No, no, Bondage of the will. Bondage Erasmus. of the will. Sorry. The bondage of the will. Has, yeah, yeah. He's responding to Actually, Calvin has a book called the freedom of the will. And so does right. uh, Edwards. Uh, Edwards. Yeah. Yes. The bondage of the will is hammering over and over against this notion of free will. But he's, if you look, he means specifically the freedom to choose a moral good and therefore earn merit before God. Yeah. And his, his right-hand men, Philip Melanchthon will, will obviously affirm the freedom of contrary choice or whatever he calls it. He talks about civic virtue, Melanchthon, for example. I don't think he uses contrary choice, but it's that idea right? Totally. where you can, you can choose chocolate or vanilla ice cream. Like that's within your power. Yeah. And the later reformers in particular, um, William Perkins will say basically because God's free, he's ordained our free choices as well. Yeah. So we, can have, we can have freedom. Uh, yeah, I'm really concerned. It's it's a weird thing, but this I've seen this a lot uh, over the last decade. This fatalism, where God is so sovereign, and it's like we're harder than the Bible and holier than Jesus. So we're harder than the Bible on everything that could be as harsh as possible. So we have no freedom. Our wretchedness is filthy rags. Like we just hammer on these to the point that we're exclusive of the other Bible verses, yeah. and then we're holier <laughs> than Jesus because we're also Pelagian sometimes. <laughs> well, we are. All, we all have that Pelagianizing tendency that ten, yeah that's a better way to put it yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny because my son who goes to uh uh augustine classical academy which is <clears> a <throat> school down here um he's in seventh grade and he's reading chosen by god by rc school <laughs> and then it's part of this you know doug wilson has that omnibus curriculum so it's part of this the, the curriculum and so we're reading and it was, it's been really weird for me to go back to that book because i you know that's the, probably the first book that i read yeah as a calvinist you know and i was like wow this is mind-blowing and you know, going back now, but reading it with my eyes, you know, two, 20 years after the fact, and then reading it, trying to help him understand it, having my own disagreements with the book now, yeah. right? Like I got a whole boatload of disagreements with it, but I'm not like, I'm not trying to explain that to him, 
because he's just trying to and so Sproul talks about why predestination is actually not fatalism you know there's there are the fates that govern things in certain you know mythical thought uh but it's also not like you know you're you're not you're just this automaton and that, that that's the issue that augustine's dealing with right is we're not we're not mere automatons we actually really do make real free choices uh god enables all that i i call the book i, I named it after a quote by augustine uh, god crowns his own gifts so god gives you these gifts and then gives you the ability to do these sorts of things and then on top of it he rewards you for it as though he, you know it had been all of your own accord meanwhile he's the one who should be getting the crown but he's crowning you you know uh, for the actions that you're really doing so he's recognizing your own free choice your, your own uh, free volition within the midst of it so it's really i mean it makes the gospel just in god seem all the it, it makes the gospel actually free and i mean you, yeah. the thing with yeah and, and this with this kind of like harsh narrowness on on freedom and, and bondage that sometimes is sometimes not always is in our circles i think it leads to a lot of things um we always want to be harder than the Bible is. And then I think it gets you into all sorts of problems practically in life. And, and so one of the things that I'm persuaded of, and I, I know we're a little bit nerdier, but it's like, it's actually doing theology matters in real life. Yeah, uh, You can read someone as um, laid out and articulate as Thomas Aquinas. who yeah, it's, you're not going to read him for like the devotional, like Monday morning read. You, you could some of his works, uh, not the well, summons, pair. Okay. Right? Yeah. 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 But like some of his, like, I mean, his commentaries, uh, I often will actually use some of his prayers in my classes and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. And yeah. Cause you gotta remember uh, Aquinas was a preacher. That's his thing. He's the yeah. order of preachers and he, and he trained preachers. His yeah, summa he is he taught homiletics. <laughs> yeah. His summa is to help like basically seminary students know, know what's up. Yeah. Um, now, but generally speaking, we kind of know him for, for those sorts right. of things. And I think, yeah. I think you can read him for profit, but, there's different categories you read him so you don't make dumb life decisions like believe in fatalism yeah. or have no view of the distinction between uh grace and nature which is actually one of the problems that we're running into now with some of the coronavirus discussions on church and state if you don't have a view of grace and nature everything's grace everything's collapsed into one category yeah. and then you say well christ is the head of the church and therefore there's no obligations anything outside of my local congregation but actually, Christ is the Lord of the universe, and he reigns by sending Babylon to Israel or rising up Cyrus, his Messiah, right. or ordaining authority across the world because there's one king, Lord Jesus Christ, over church and creation. And you're going to minimize that by your, I don't know, this this tiny little view of, of grace without any sort of nature. Um, yeah. And so guys like uh, Aquinas can help you with that. They can actually help you be a reasonable person who can understand the world and reality. I think most of us don't understand reality because we ignore it, because we've ignored the, the category of nature and we only embrace grace. Yep. Now, that's abstract. So maybe say what I'm saying in more in more practical ways. <laughs> well, I was what I was going to say was I, I think one of the, the problems for us in reading him now is that we we're reading. We read, you know, all the medievals, but especially Aquinas, who's really the high watermark of them through a kind of like lens similar to what we we're just saying about how we kind of have this misunderstanding of like predestination and how that works and not being fatalistic. There are these kind of like popularized views of reformed theology today. Uh, and I think that had to, this had to happen. Like we, we, you know, let me back up for a sec. So you think of like Packer, right? J.I. Packer and his awesome introduction uh, to John Owen's death of death and the death of Christ. It's a classic, right? Five points of Calvinism and all that stuff. And he writes that probably what in the fifties, I think when Banner Truth published that book. And so he, he is um, really on the 
the very cusp, the beginnings of the reformed resurgence that we talk about with our culture, our day. No, yeah. Packers doing this back in the day with the banner of truth. And they don't have, they, they, there's, there would have been a loss of a lot of the, the, the texts from the reformed tradition. So they're rediscovering Owen on the death of death, which is on, you know, what we call limited atonement. So he's articulating that in his essay. Well, the essay then blows up. Everybody, everybody's into theology is reading that and everybody becomes these really strong five point Calvinists. But then as the next generation comes and does work based on what Packer's done, they're digging in, they're like, whoa, there's a lot more diversity and variety here within this tradition. And actually maybe Owen is not the, the standard bearer of a view of the atonement. And so then then the older guard guys don't like what the younger guard guys or the new guard guys are saying. Mm-hmm. So it create a bit of a mess. Well, that's happened now with Aquinas, right? Whereas like you had a lot of these people like Van Til, you know, Cornelius Van Til, Francis Schaefer, who really trashed um, Aquinas as a, as a possible source for, for Protestantism or Reformed theology. And that became the dominant paradigm. You don't go to him. And it was actually R.C. Sproul that was one of the ones who actually kind of started to revive Aquinas for the Protestant tradition, such that now, you know, here I've got this book handy, <laughs> lo and behold, mm-hmm. uh, Aquinas Among the Protestants, edited by Van Drunen and, and uh, uh, Svensson. And now we're starting to see, oh, this guy's actually really important. And the way that the, the split between nature and grace that Van Til and Schaefer argued that, uh, that, that Aquinas was actually doing and that's why he's so bad because he split nature and grace is actually no he's actually put them in Aquinas said long ago put them in the right relationship of grace perfecting nature and you need nature if you're to have grace to perfect it right and so you know uh, you just made me realize that uh, when we start the confessions of Augustine we should almost do like one um one episode on uh, on Christian teaching by Augustine to talk oh, about totally Christian. Because the thing in things signified, which is yeah. basically nature and grace, or is that kind of idea that, no, it's not a division. It's that everything manifests the glory of God. I look at a tree and I go, wow, that reflects God's glory. Yeah. It's in yeah. nature, but it's no less pointing me to grace, to God. Yeah, yeah that's history, true natural theology, right? Like, natural theology. And uh, yeah, you, you, you've, you kind of nailed it and gave that kind of good historical background. I, this is one of their Achilles heels today that we're still working through. I mean, because there's a lot of good in obviously Cornelius Van Til and all that kind of stuff, but some of his emphases then get taken up by students and they become so weird and unreformed and unchristian. Yeah. I'm not saying they're not, they're, I'm not saying someone's not a Christian. I mean, unreformed, unchristian the, the body of teaching. Yeah. And uh, it gets so weird and strange. And these categories come where you, uh, like I said, you basically think the only thing that's going on is like Christ only reigns locally in my church. <laughs> like, yeah. well, yeah, which is ironically, as as my friend Joe Minnick once argued in an essay, I think either mirror Christian, mirror mirror orthodoxy or Calvinist okay. International. That's that's a it's a weird papalism, right? Yeah. Where like now you have all these little papists in all these Baptist churches, you know, okay. and, and yeah. it's, it, there's because there's a loss of the body of Christ. There's a loss of the body. There's a, there's a lack of basic ecclesiology. When Paul defines the church in Colossians and Ephesians, he says the church. Then there's a comma the body of Christ. Yeah. In that position. And at the church of the body of Christ, all those united to Christ by faith, we are across the globe, all that body. And then there are local expressions. Paul writes to the body in Corinth, the body in Ephesus, the body in Colossus, whatever. But we've missed that. And we've actually started in the wrong direction. Paul actually starts at the big direction and goes down to the lower, to the, the local instances. We start the local instance and then kind of ignore the, the big body. Yeah. I mean, but, the creeds, I think we talked about this yeah. if I recall in the last Maybe. year, we're like the apostles creed has that that twofold distinction right there in a proper order, right? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. 
the communion of saints. So the Holy Catholic Church, mm-hmm. that's, that's the body of Christ at large. Uh, and then the communion of saints is your local congregation. Right? Which, by the way, the creed is, is basically what's necessary to be a Christian. So do you believe in the triune God, in Christ the Redeemer, and the body of Christ the church? And so it's actually pretty serious to get this wrong. Although, I mean, not to be like just having a mistake, right. but to get it wrong in terms of like fulsome belief. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those weird problems, but uh, I think we're still, we're still working through it. We still see a lot of weaknesses uh, because of these issues. And so I, for me, I'm excited to jump into Augustine. We're going to finish Calvin still. We need to go through. Yeah, book we're, close, we're so close. And now we're like, yeah, you're just getting to the end of this. It's like that last you know, mile of a run where you're just, you just don't want to, you know, it's like, when is this going to get done? I mean, actually, I'm, I don't think that at all really about Calvin because I'm, I'm excited to do book four, but. Um, well, I mean, Calvin has a pretty good view of these things too, that, that the, uh, the universe is basically a theater of God's glory. glory. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so I'm, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many things that are be coming up to on the radar. We're going to have be battling over vaccines, vaccine passports, all these different things. Are they good? Are they bad? That's a scary one. I find it fascinating that Isaiah, I think 28, 26 is that God teaches the farmer. And if you go through scripture, you actually see that somehow the, the regular things in nature actually are from God. What do you have that has not been given to you or nature reflects God. And I think we need more categories for understanding uh, nature as being providentially guided by God. And there are natural goods. They're not gracious goods, but natural. So medicine is a natural good. It's not a gracious good until you actually see what it signifies. And that, basically is, is Christ as the healer. So Isaiah one actually gets into this when it talks about sin It actually calls it a sickness. And then Isaiah 53 gets into the thing signified because he actually takes our, uh, our sickness and bears our wounds. Yeah. No, and, I, I, I would love to do that. Yeah. On Christian teaching to get into that thing. Yeah, I think so. It's super important. Quite frank, quite frankly, I think that's actually, if we do find a failing in Aquinas, when we look at his sacramental theology on transubstantiation, he actually butchers Augustine on thing and thing signified, right? Because that's what that's what a sacrament is, is the is that that signifier, and you lose it in transubstantiation. You lose you lose yeah. the thing, right? And uh, and so I, I've always found that very interesting because I mean I I I my my theology has been so enriched uh, since I was, you know, helpfully convinced by some of my friends that you know what Van Til's wrong on on Aquinas. He's actually super helpful, especially when it comes to your doctrine of God stuff attributes trinity and uh and since being willing to like read him with these new set of eyes uh, man my whole faith is just like grown in leaps and bounds in terms of its understanding of who god is and uh i'm glad i'm not stuck in this place where i'm not uh, oh he's the bad guy i can't read him you know no and the other thing is like it's not the case there's like the bad guys and the good guys as you can read aquinas benefit discern don't uh, agree with him on transubstantiation or on Mary or whatever, but you, but the body of Christ is not the body of Christ because they're correct on everything. It's because they yeah. believe in Jesus Christ. And so if I, I'm going to probably disagree with Augustine, with Calvin, with Luther, or anyone probably, but that's not really the point. Yeah. <laughs> the point is that God has actually, according to scripture, uh, Jesus promised to build his church and he has, and the spirit affects uh, the, the roles of teacher in the church. And we can see how God, Christ, actually grows the church through the Holy Spirit, through history. And we can learn from that. Uh, it's not the level of scripture, but I mean, insofar as they're reflecting scriptural truth, they're helping us discern the times, how to live, what who God is, yep. how to pray, how to live, how to parent, whatever. Right? I'm actually reading a book on um, family and marriage right now by John Chrysostom, or homilies. Yeah. Oh, cool. And he's 
from the 300s, late 300s and yeah. early 400s. And, uh, but he's still beneficial <laughs> to oh, read. He's amazing. I, so, you know, I, I don't know. If, um, I always think of this when I think of uh, John Chrysostom. Um, you know, the New Testament scholar, uh, Moises Silva. Um, so he. The MMA fighter, you mean? <laughs> Sorry. Wait, no. Oh, you're thinking Anderson's, of uh, no, Anderson. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's also Tiago Moises. So uh, maybe they blended together and they're a New Testament scholar. Uh, but Moises Silva, you know, he's a Septuagint expert, taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Absolutely brilliant. And he has a really cool book on interpreting Galatians. And in the, in the introduction to it, he's talking about um, using the past to help us um, in, in our modern exegesis. And he, he argued that one of the best places to turn if you want to understand um, like the kind of linguistics of, of the New Testament is actually to turn to some of the Greek fathers uh, who actually knew the language. It was theirs. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they know that world better than we do. We had to learn it uh, from other teachers. That was just what they, that was just the world that they, they lived and spoke in. And, um, and because Chrysostom's having to preach from that text, uh, he's actually a really incredible resource for us in terms of doing modern exegesis today. And, uh, and I thought, wow, that was like, that was like a really insightful um, comment that Moises Silva made. And when you start to read and dig into That's right. Oscar, you're like, wow, this guy has it. Like he really understands this text. And, yep. uh, yeah. and then you're seeing him apply it in his context through preaching. You're like, wow, like, thank you. That was really helpful as I try to do the same in my context, you know? No, that's right. And you have a guy like Chris Austin, who's a native Greek speaker, who learned his theology from another native Greek speaker, who learned his theology, you know, you go through it, there's basically an unbroken period of 400 years, but by this time, of Christians from the apostles who spoke Greek, who thought about the meaning of the text and transmitted the, the deposit given to them. I say unbroken because it basically is unbroken. I mean, you can still at this time have connections to the apostles in very kind of vibrant ways. Yeah. Not to say that you like, I mean, 400 years is a long time. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But there's there's memories, there's books. You can read Papias, who is a, a contemporary of the apostles, whose yeah. his writings are, I think we're around in the 300s still. Uh, you can read Polycarp, who is a very, very late, possibly contemporary with some of the older apostles like John. Yeah, like John. Yeah. Um, but you can read these people still and have access to them and, and have that kind of written and sort of oral memory. And so it's just, it's that, but it's also Greek. They know Greek. Yeah. One of the interesting things, just a quick side note, is you can read something like First Clement, where a guy named Clement in Rome is writing to the Corinthian church in the late 90s and recounts what happens after Paul left. Yeah. Well, look, I love did, it. did you want to know what Paul meant by what he said and you're confused? Yeah. Look how the church applied it for the next 30 years. We actually have that information. Um, if yeah, you want Ignatius of Antioch is another really yeah, helpful Ignatius one, of right? Antioch. He, yeah. He's from Paul's sending church. Yeah. Antioch. Yeah, uh, he would be roughly 30 years after Paul died. He probably became a bishop in the, I would guess, 80s or 90s or whatever. But he's still alive when down the road, John the Apostle is there and the, the daughters of Sceva from the book of Acts and yeah. uh, 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 one, uh, one or two others. So John the Elder and um, Aristion as well, who are disciples of Jesus. Yeah. So you're like, you can just ask them questions. What do you think Jesus meant? <laughs> so they're not dummies. No. Uh, we have a wealth of these riches and uh, we never, and we never go to it. And there's, they're exegetical as well uh, yeah. when they refer to scripture or the words of Jesus or whatever. So I, I, I joke with my students and say like, you know, it used to even be the case. I mean, cause you know, we Protestants and evangelicals are so anemic historically 
that I you know, I, I could actually use, you know, a number of years ago, I could say, well, we talk, sort of, when we think of like church history, we kind of don't go as far back as, you know, Billy Graham is like the beginning of it all. And now even for these people, like Billy Graham is ancient history, uh, you know, for the millennial and the generation Z. And, uh, but like we have 2000 years of source yeah. material that is so rich and so informative and so thoughtful and we just don't even think about it. Uh, Let me like, give you one example of this and we'll try to close down relatively soon. Um, I wanna get your thoughts on the vaccine passport. Though, okay, so let's, I'll do like a two minute thing then we'll, we'll, we'll finish yeah. on vaccine passports because why not? Uh, why not? It's Calvin. Yeah, so uh, I talked to the book of Hebrews recently and there's this, I think it's in Hebrews six, it talks about being enlightened. What does that mean to be enlightened? That's a hard one. And you read, and there's, there, uh, if you look at Hebrews six, there's actually, um, there's these couplets. So in light, I can't remember, enlightens with, I think, uh, taste in the spirit or something like that. I can't remember. There's these couplets and, they, and they're all kind of together. It's catechism, entering the church and something else, judgment. And then you see other hints with the book. You can look at Hebrews 10 and all this kind of stuff. So something's going on there. So what does the word enlightened mean? And there's, there's hints throughout. Well, then you can read something like um, Justin Martyr who wrote, uh, who ministered in Rome, which is probably tied to the provenance of the book of Hebrews somehow, at least, because at the end of the book talks about those in Italy, other uh, reception or from. Um, and and Justin Martyr's straight up clear that enlightenment, enlightenment means baptism. It's just a synonym oh, for it. I didn't yeah, know there's no, it's like, and then, and then if you read the history, that's how it's taken up in the early church. Enlightenment's baptism. Wow. Hebrews. wow. Oh, I didn't know that. That's awesome. And so when you go to Hebrews 6, it's, uh, it's really about rebaptism for a lot of people huh. to fall away. There's, there's no renewed repentance kind of thing. Wow. So you okay, think that, oh, I just learned something new. I, yeah. I did not know that. That's cool. And then you might be like, well, is Hebrews actually saying enlightenment baptism? Well, that couplet, if I remember it, is about entering the church. And there's a bunch of other stuff in the book that talks about the multiple washings. There's all these things that are mentioned throughout. And if you read, I, so this is from like months ago. So my brain's not hyper fresh. So I can't just pull the verses out. But you read there's, there's tons of hints on this. There's also hints of the Eucharist too, when it talks about the blood that speaks a better word than Abel, because uh, if this is going to be a, this is going to be part of a, a worship service, the, the book, the letter itself, then all the the blood references probably signify that the blood shed for you. Wow. Um, and that's why they're brought up from the Old Testament to remind you of the Eucharistic gift. Um, so there, there's there's good reason to think that with the washing, enlightenment, all that kind of stuff refers to baptism. Yeah. Oh, and that's, that's, that's how the early church. I like that. As early as Justin Martyr. So Justin Martyr's writing. Yeah, he's, one one, the, he's one of the 140s. early apologists. Yeah, yeah, one of the 140s. But he's been around the block before the 140s. Yeah. He's in the same location that, that Hebrews is tied to. Hebrews is probably 60, so that's still an 80-year difference. But he learns it from someone. Yep. And so it's and it's, it, for him, it's not just a plausible interpretation. It is what everyone accepts, right? It's not like this is a contentious issue. It's the received right. teaching. And, and then when you actually take that and say, okay, does this actually fit? In does it actually fit? You're going to ask that question. Like, oh, this makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, it makes total sense. Yeah. yeah. Now, d disagree with me, whatever you want. But I mean, I think stuff like that, and that's just a tiny example to give you like a, one little bit of insight into one verse. Yeah. But you see that everywhere. And I just think we need to um, just have pay better, pay better close attention to the, how Jesus grew the church, how the Holy Spirit worked to inspire teachers. Inspire it not in the scriptural sense, but in the general sense. Yeah lead maybe is, is a better way and um and to learn as best we can by prayer trusting the holy spirit and by doing our own investigation of the text as a good protestants vaccine passports yes so, so okay because 
you know, when I first heard rumblings about this a little while ago, I'm thinking, well, vaccine passport doesn't, it doesn't sound too crazy because I mean, you know, if you had, if you had to have your polio vaccination, it would go on your passport if you're traveling yes. countries and things like that. So it's not new. It's no, this is not the mark of the beast and things like that. But now as they sort of like are starting to like roll out in certain places and plans are being kind of like revealed, you're like, this doesn't, this doesn't sound like just some sort of passport to me. It seems like you can't go into certain places if you don't have it. You, you know, um, can't travel like in Canada, you can't travel between provinces and stuff like that. And that's what I'm starting to think, man. And then like, and then, and then you can get, start getting freaked out. You know, I'm a, I, I love Orwell. I've, I've read so much of his stuff and I take him very seriously. And then you start thinking about Australia and Australia with like helicopters. It's like, did you not read Orwell? Like there are helicopters flying over houses to see if people are stuck in their houses or not. And you're like, what? Did I, what? I, I think I read to you, but uh, they're, unlo- they're unloading an app in Australia that it'll ping you. And within 15 minutes, you have to take a picture of your face Great. in the location you're expected to be. I think it's because you're supposed to quarantine. I think that's how it works. So if you're quarantined, you have to have a, an app and take a picture of yourself to geolocate you in the appropriate place so that you're not, I guess, not a criminal. However, they maybe it's not criminal charge. I don't know what they would call it. But sort of, probably some sort of fine or penalty. Fine. Yes, yeah, probably not accurate. Still. I don't know. It, it, is, it is wild. So in Ontario, where I live, they, was it yesterday, announced vaccine passports that on September 22 come in for restaurants, gyms, theaters, strip clubs, which I, <laughs> I'm not going to be going to those. Um, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, those are the main categories. Not offensive. churches, though. No, not churches. None of the vaccine passports in Canada affect churches. So in BC, Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. I don't know if the Atlantic provinces have passports yet. Uh, I, we're all going to get them. Alberta has a vaccine card that's definitely not a vaccine passport and it's definitely way different, but you could use this proof of vaccination if you want. Anyway, so we're all going to get it. Um, they're not going to, they're not applying to churches. They're applying to so-called high-risk areas. Um, so there's a number of issues to disentangle. So, so my cynical take is that vaccine passports are meant to quarantine the unvaccinated or to lock down the unvaccinated more accurately, actually. And so instead of a lockdown, they lock down the unvaccinated population. Since you can still transmit the virus if you're vaccinated, although at a lesser degree than if you're unvaccinated, you're still going to get it. Yeah. No. And so my my damage will be mitigated by the the damage will be mitigated. But but my own view is we're all adults. There's treatment, there's vaccines, and we understand the disease. We're no longer in a state of emergency for that reason. If an unvaccinated person wants to not be vaccinated and to come into my presence if I have a cough, I mean, at one point we have to be uh, individuals. Yeah, there's (laughs) a line, right? There's a line. So I'm I'm not too favorable. They don't affect churches directly, but they're going to affect churches indirectly. So I talked to a pastor yesterday. So I'll I'll give you two conversations with pastors and let you respond to these. So here's one pastor said, uh, I think a couple days ago, there's someone in my church who has cancer, who's doing cancer treatments. This person said, I'm not coming to church unless you impose vaccine passports on your church. Wow. Okay. Another pastor I talked to yesterday said, we have a leadership retreat, an Ellis retreat, but it's, you know, at a retreat center. It's after the vaccine passport and one of our leadership team doesn't have a vaccine. So this person can't come, I guess. So what is that? Like, do you, do you still go? even the one person can't. So it doesn't affect church. Well, then also for funerals and for weddings, um, 
there's some application. I can't remember the details offhand. So you'd have to make the, the wedding a religious service basically. Right. But, um, but if you're going to do a reception for a funeral, I think that's for sure. They have to be vaccinated. So it's going to affect churches indirectly in these ways, yeah. at least. I mean, part of me, when we're back in Canada and I was listening to the CBC, which I mean, good grief, I can't believe. But I, why would I listen to it? I mean, I was just subjecting myself to torture every put <laughs> on the news, you know? Uh, I mean, it's such a, I mean, it's unbelievable how, how it, that, 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 that news uh, um, organization has just gone crazy. But anyway, I've listened to them and with this vaccine passport stuff and the way that they're view, I mean, they were actually saying things like, everybody needs to get vaccinated. You 20% of people that haven't done it yet, you're not letting us live our lives, go get it done. And I'm, I mean, I'm vaccinated. I'm not an anti-vaxxer and, and, and all that. I've got my issues on certain medical things, but like, I thought you're creating two classes within the society here that's based upon a hostility between the two of them. This is a recipe for civil war. Like, do you not think this can't happen here? Like, that's terrifying. And so now that's actually happening now within churches, just by, as you say, kind of like more indirectly, and that, that's going to pose all sorts of like pastoral problems. Like even just like you're saying, I mean, like, cause you could say with the one, the second one that you gave, well, then that one elder, that's his free choice. We respect that. We can zoom him in uh, while yeah. we all gather yeah. and he doesn't want to hang out with us, but that's fine. Um, but man, that other one is, that's a, that's a thorny one. I'd have to sit and think about that one for a bit because I don't know what you would do. And, and what if your parents say, look, we'll, we'll put our kids into childcare at the church, but can, can, can it be like, like, can all the childcare workers be vaccinated just for our safety? Because kids yeah. can't be vaccinated yet. So they're worried. Right. But then on the flip side, kids aren't really like that negatively impacted, yeah. at least by the, the variants we're aware of. So, so I'll, I'll, probably get well no one will actually care but i agree for me i think what's holding us back in canada is a lot of parents are really afraid for their children going back to school and when kids can be vaccinated under 12 then i think the the worry will dissipate personally i'm statistically i mean the influence is worse for kids than this thing so i'm just not really worried at all for my kids i don't want them to get covid and i think long covid is a real thing and all that too so i am cautious but yeah, and if it can do things like damage your lungs and stuff like that, you gotta be super careful there's no doubt you but, can't just be flippant about it but i don't know man treatments available vaccines are available i just i don't see us being in a state of emergency i see us being in a state of caution yeah uh maybe you have uh better vent ventilation systems installed everywhere maybe you limit the amount of people in a bus like you can do stuff like that but i I don't get it at this point. I think it's become, it's gone too far in Canada. The U S is different. You guys, yeah. it's, it's different. I think California is more strict or whatever, but like, yeah, like New York, California, some of those places are yeah. where we, I mean, Texas is like, it's its own thing, right? Like it's wide open here. Right here. It's fairly moderate. Um, like our kids now, I think as far as I understand it, um, even though they go to a private Christian school, they still follow the guidelines for their County. And um, so our kids are required, not required, but I, I think it's, it's up to the parents. It seems like I'm not sure. We have our kids wearing masks. We, we went out and bought these crazy masks. Each mask hmm. is 30 bucks. Hmm. And it's more like a mesh mask, but it's made out of silver. And so silver, as you know, with you know the, the chalice uh, for for the Eucharist, if you have a silver chalice and you have fortified wine in that, that's antibacterial. So you never have to worry about catching something with a common cup. Well, it's the same principle for these masks. So these kids, my kids can now breathe. They don't have to worry about sucking in their own air. 
uh, that you can actually see their face a little bit better when they're talking. And, uh, and then it's immediately any, anything that touches that mask immediately, it kill, it can, fungus can't grow on it. Nothing. You don't have to wash them. They're just, they're just antibacterial. Interesting. Yeah. So I, we bought those and I was like, well, seeing as how I just I have four kids, 30 bucks a piece. I just spent 120 bucks on masks. I'm making them wear that. <laughs> you could have bought a better mic for your laptop. And <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> this one's fun. This one's I, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this whole thing, like my my daughter wore um, a mask at school last year, will again this year. She could care less about it, but I, I don't know. Oh, no, 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 no. She couldn't care less. She couldn't care less. Okay, good. <laughs> she doesn't mind. I think now she doesn't like as much. I, I don't know how to feel about these things. I, let me put it this way. Anyone who thinks coronavirus is serious is okay with measures. If you think coronavirus is kind of a fake fake pandemic, minor disease, then all this feels like like tyranny, yeah. right? So, r- realistically, like, because if if the if uh, if you had the 1918 pandemic coming through, and people were dying Spanish, left and right, Spanish, Spanish flu, yeah. you'd be like, yeah, dude, I am not going to that, I'm not going to this hundred person party because I will, I might die, yeah, or someone might die. So that's more obvious to people. But I think because this one, let me put it this way, because we have such good medical technology. <laughs> And and a better, uh, stronger economies and all that kind of stuff and freedoms that we can do these technocratic solutions. The problem with technocratic solutions is they're not ones that are based on the rule of law, like typical Western societies have been ruled upon. So the charter in Canada, for example, is a consideration, but it's actually the technocratic advisors, like the medical elite who are advising the, the politicians who in a state of emergency feel like they have the right to infringe upon our charter charter rights. Yeah. And technically they, they can, because that's how the charter works, but that doesn't make it good, right? <laughs> like you, oh. you infringe upon rights when you have to, not because you should. So the idea of common law and the idea of the, the rule of law, which is kind of the basis of modern Western society is still present, but kind of forgotten about because of emergency powers. And this is why like in Ontario in particular, I think that December 1 is when emergency powers end. It needs to be done now. Um, so I'm a little bit of a, I'm at the pushback phase of the government, I guess. <laughs> yeah, rightly so. I mean, and, and then when you put things into like a much bigger perspective of like how governments work, use of power, when money is at play, you know, like, are you telling me that like governments are making piles of money off these vaccines and, uh, you know, the kickbacks and like the upper echelons of power where these like money bags are being handed around, you know, like those are big motivators and you can't, you can't look askance at that either, you know? And so it's a matter of like trying to put everything into perspective and then who am I as a Christian? How do I live in the midst of all this? How does my church function in the midst of all of this? Right. It's, it's hard stuff. But again, I think the early church can help us with these sorts of things. Like think about like the persecutions of the early church in the Roman empire. Think about the Donatist controversy with Augustine. How are they trying to work through these issues? You've got the crazy fundamentalists on the one side, the people who are trying to be balanced on the other, the crazies who are going along with everything on the, and you're just like, wow. Right. And, they're, and they're working through it. And, you know, what can we learn from them? No, nothing's new under the sun. And one way to answer the question, and maybe we can kind of end in the next five minutes, because I'm sure you have to go to class or whatever. Is like I don't even know what time it is. I could, my class could be waiting for me right now. Oh, okay, well, then who cares? Um, uh, you really need to be all millennial when you read the book of Revelation. Ooh, ooh now you are getting controversial. Because uh, the book of Revelation is, is Jesus writing to seven churches and telling them, how things are and will be. And you have uh, a better insight into the the machinations of the the beasts. 
who co-opt economic systems and co-opt military power to corrupt what is good. And what is good is like Romans 13 says that God ordains authority. And so authority is good. Hierarchy is good in the sense, but there are corruptions in this world and you see those corruptions. So you can say in Ontario, Doug Ford wants to do the right thing, but he has a thousand people around him and concerns and there's, there's corrupting forces around. So you're actually, and so that would be like one of the beasts, for example. So you're actually equipped to sort of understand these. You're equipped to see both the good of hierarchy, the good of government, the good of authority, but also the corrupting forces that are that are prevalent in society. Yeah. And so you can be faithful by, you know, um, living within the system, doing your best to pay honor to whom honors do, but always being as, as wise as a serpent and as innocent as a dove in the scenario, because you know that not everything is just purely neutral. I'll say a positive thing about um, our friend Cornelius Van Til is I think he's right. And there's, there's really not a real sense of neutrality anywhere in this world. There are people who are tending in one direction. They might be tending toward the civic good. They might be being corrupted toward the civic evil. And so we want to encourage I mean, the salt of the earth and, and help our governments tend towards the civic good through our voting, through our lobbying, through our encouragement, through writing our MPPs, through whatever it is. Um, that's the direction we want to go. And because there's a real sense in which this salty work is, uh, and, and this being a light on the hill, is defeating these these machinations of dark powers that are that are real and prevalent in this world. Absolutely. So 100%. be all millennial. I, I agree, 100%. <laughs> okay, we'll be uh, back with Kelvin next week in book four. I don't remember where we are. I'll put that on social media. And uh, we talked about maybe doing this every couple of months, doing a, like a theology carnival of like all the in, like, all the controversial items of the day, yeah. not to be hyper controversial, but to kind of maybe talk through them and to give some sort of right, Aquinas. Right, right. Yeah, you got to read Aquinas. Aquinas is great. Awesome good, guy. Good for Protestants. Good for Protestants. <laughs> all right. Bye, Ian.